Mixed Media Movies. And welcome back to Mixed Media. It is currently 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time um, as we're filming this. And uh, if you didn't know, this is a live show as well as a podcast. So if you want to check out any links to see this live show, uh, we go on usually for around two hours. Uh, today is a little bit longer because I had a really excellent long interview with the folks at uh, Catholic Game Reviews uh, with uh, Nathan. Talked about all kinds of things, including the progression of, of games and some hot takes uh, that you can check out uh, by checking out our podcast pages and our video pages. All right, so uh, today I postponed my normal topic, uh, or my scheduled topic, I should say, which was supposed to be the CIA and Hitchcock, which I had been hyping up and I was super excited for because I had sort of built up to this moment and our understanding of how art is uh, influenced by economics, um, by different social factors, and by government. You know, And so we're going through that whole thing, and then I want to talk uh, about Hitchcock Great filmmaker, of course, with his uh, uh, interesting experience with the CIA. But I had a very busy week last week. And so I didn't get a chance to do the research that I wanted to do to make a really excellent episode. So instead, I thought of something different to talk about this week. So this week, I'm talking about black and white films. And not just any black and white films. I'll be talking about mostly modern black and white films. So post-black and white age you know, uh, especially, you know, uh, as we see it uh, sort of resurging in the last three years or so, becoming almost like a, a trendy thing to make black and white films, which seems kind of odd to people. Um, and I want to break some of that down. So what are these black and white films that are, have been coming out? So I'll, I'll give you a list. So on the Oscars this uh, year on the stage, what comes to mind is the film Belfast, which I watched um, a, a good film um, overall. And uh, the film, uh, the tragedy of Macbeth, um, which is what features in the thumbnail right there, which I've yet to see, but it's definitely on my, my watch list, uh, some some A-list actors in there that I, I want to see uh, smash some speaks Shakespeare very well. <laughs> Hopefully, I cross my fingers. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, these films are done in black and white on the Oscar stage, but there have been plenty of more films that have come out uh, in black and white, including, let me get my list out here, uh, The French Dispatch, which uh, stars uh, Tilly, uh, Timothy Chalamet, um, who... Uh, you know, is is very trendy these days. I think he's a I think he's a a, a trendy figure amongst the ladies, is my understanding. So uh, <laughs> that is well beyond my uh, my years of that high school talk about uh, the the boy actor or whatever. Um, <laughs> um, but in any case, let's see. We've got uh, the French Dispatch. Oh yes, very interestingly, uh, Parasite recently came out. Parasite, the Oscar winning film for best picture. I think in 2019, if I remember correctly, either that or 2018, Parasite was uh, recut in black and white and came out recently, which is very interesting. And uh, I'm sure there are a few more that are going to I'm going to forget. Um, oh yes, there's a there's being the Ricardos apparently has a section in black and white. Needless to say, it's been appearing. It's been appearing in expensive uh, Hollywood films. So first of all, a little bit of history. Of course, filmmaking starts in black and white, right? In in a lot of technically uh, simpler ways, right? So we have black and white. 
we have actually using celluloid film. We have using really small film cells, like, you know, eight millimeter, um, which produces extremely grainy footage. You have the lack of sound. Um, and so we, we start off with this primitive thing, which is just watching motion uh, in eight millimeter at 24 frames a second on some really grainy, poorly rendered, uh, <laughs> poorly processed, you know, uh, eight millimeter black and white film. And we come all the way today where we have like 20K, whatever, digital, you know, uh, depth of field, whatever. You can throw out so many technical words to describe the advances that we have today. Now, sometime in the middle there, we made a huge transition from black and white to color. Now, I'm not super familiar with the technical aspects of that. I assume it's mostly a chemistry proposition with how the celluloid is constructed. But the more interesting thing is the era in between where we have the availability of color film. But what happened after the availability of color film is not every film being made in color. And we're talking about, uh, I believe, the late 50s or 50s, 60s, something like that, um, where, we're, where we're making this transition. Or, oh, okay. I mean, the color comes about a little bit earlier. Yeah, uh, because if you watch a show for a while, I talked about the adventures of Robin Hood, which is an early film in color in 1930. Right. Yes, 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 yes. So the so, yes, the technology had been uh, quite around for a while. The 909 crime says the two mode Technicolor era is underrated to TBH big vibes going on there. There is some beautiful Technicolor. I, I wish I understood the science and the the. The, the technical aspects of Technicolor a lot better. But uh, even uh, after looking at uh, the adventures of Robin Hood, after Ben uh, talked about it briefly, the color rendition is, is, is gorgeous. It's something else. And I would love to explore it again, uh, you know, maybe in a little bit of a study, but in, in either case though, we had a large era, you know, multiple decades where the technology was available, but it wasn't widely adopted. And, of course, there's the expense of processing color film. That wasn't the driving factor. There was a sort of understanding that black and white was sort of part of the film tradition from some of the, some from certain directors. I know Hitchcock talks about black and white a lot. He chose to make Psycho, uh, which is a much later film than you might think because it's in black and white when he has other color films. Um, whereas he chose to make something like The Birds in color, which is actually an earlier film. So, yes, there's a lot of thoughts in that era about black and white versus color. And there's good reason for that. So I'll, I'll go into that a little bit later. But first, I want to go into the new uh, technology that is sort of bringing, I think, black and white back into the con- conversation. I can't really speak to the exact why for the trend that we're seeing now. And I really just want to focus more on why black and white is has persisted for so long and why it works even today. So I can't really speak to the why it's so, so trendy these days, but I can imagine certain things that might've happened. Like for example, a bunch of black and white digital cameras coming out, which was huge news when they came out, just purely black and white digital cameras. And you might ask yourself, well, why on earth would you want a black and white digital camera in 20, you know, 21? 2022, right? So uh, Red, uh, which is a you know premier camera company, um, they make the Epic series of cameras and a whole bunch of other camera lines, uh, very expensive. 
Uh, Red came out with uh, a black and white version of their, uh, let's see, Mysterium series. So they, they released a camera called the Mysterium X, and it's a purely black and white monochrome sensor. And let's see, it went for $42,000. <laughs> to give you an idea of expense, forty-two thousand dollars for a black and white cinema camera, and then Ari, the other major uh, film uh, camera manufacturer, I would say probably the more popular in in sort of the more traditional film spaces, even their digital cameras. Ari came out with their Alexa XT black and white, which. Uh, you know, had some other interesting technological things like high frame rate stuff and whatever. But the operating thing was it's all black and white. <laughs> the only thing it can do is black and white. There's no mode. You can't switch it into color. It's just black and white. And I don't have the, the price in front of me, but I'm sure it's even more expensive than the red version. Uh, I'm sure it's like something like $50,000 when it surprised me whatsoever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so you're asking yourself, why the heck would you do that? So I'm going to do a little bit of drawing real quick to explain to you the technology that is actually extremely simple to understand as to why you would want to create a digital camera like this. So let's get a little bit technical. So pixels, right, are the single units that make up digital images, right? So you have an array of pixels. So if I were to draw real quick, very poorly probably because I'm on my computer, you would have, oh boy, you would have, uh, you know, a, that's, that's horrible. Let's try to do this better. <laughs> okay. It's going to be bad. <laughs> you would have a, you know, this is your image and it's subdivided into a bunch of uh, pixels that are, uh, are, you can imagine are actually of the same size. And, uh, you know, each of these pixels has a color, right? So this pixel over here has a color. Uh, let's say it's green. This pixel over here has a color. Let's say it's red. And then the magic is that your brain, uh, well, it's not really your brain. There's a bunch of optics things going on. It has to do with resolution. That you can see things. It's actually quite complicated. It's something I studied in college. But the interesting thing is that you interpret these discrete pixels of pixel information when you're looking at a digital image as a big cohesive image and you can imagine how that happens i don't think i have to explain that the more interesting thing is what each of these pixels do to produce a color at all right why not just bright or dark well each of these pixels is actually not one cell in fact each of these pixels is actually four pixels so let's take this green uh cell over here and erase this let's take the green cell and if you're listening to podcast only you know, we have four little cells making up the one big pixel. And these four little cells making up the one big pixel have each have a color. And the way each of these have a color is they put a little gel material on top of the what's called a diode, which is what the cell really is, the thing that produces the light. They put a little gel over the diode to give it a color that it receives. So if light hits this pixel, it hits a green uh, filter on top of a diode, the, all the non-green light gets filtered out, and then the, re the remaining green light hits the diode, and that sends a signal 
to the uh, digital components in your camera that do some crazy processing afterwards. So the typical layout of these uh, things, I'm probably going to get wrong the directionality of it, uh, but it's more or less, oh, more or less two green pixels, uh, one red pixel, and one blue pixel. And if you know anything about digital images, this is RGB, magically, right? So we think about uh, digital images in terms of how much red there is, how much green there is, and how much blue there is in the entire image and in these particular pixels. So that's how this works. But what if you took off the coding of these particular cells? What would you have? Well, you'd lose all color information now, right? Because you, you couldn't tell the difference between uh, a photon that has a lot of, uh, or a photon rather, that's frequency is more like green versus more like red. You would only have intensity information now because you didn't do any filtering. So if I go ahead and undo this so that we remove those cells, all we have now are black and white cells, right? So this might be darker. Well, actually, they're all just the same, I should say. And now we're just telling the sensitivity in all four of those cells. So without doing any work or development or anything interesting to the sensor, I have actually just quadrupled the amount of, of uh, spatial information by sacrificing color information. So now for every color cell I used to have in that sensor, now I have four black and white cells, which gives me what? It gives me massive amounts of resolution, right? <laughs> so if I had a sort if I had a uh, 10k you know sensor before, or like or let's say 4k sensor before, uh, now I actually have a 16k sensor. All of a sudden, by doing nothing or removing the coding off of these uh, particular cells, that's the really basic science behind why these people came out with these cameras because. Some people actually desire that level of resolution at the at the sacrifice of color. A lot of these are for commercials or other things or things where you want to draw stills from them. So you want to be able to take a still out of uh, out of the video and still be nice quality. But the uh, the primary thing is that you get a massive more amount of resolution. But there are other byproducts. So I'm not going to explain the math behind this and get into it too much. But basically. Every pixel has a range of uh, specificity. So if you're familiar with um, 8-bit, right, that's uh, 256, I believe, uh, you know, possible values between 0 and 255 uh, that any pixel could have for red, green, or blue, right? So red could be anywhere between two, 0 and 255 and so on and so forth for each individual cell in a color pixel. If I made that black and white now, what's what I could possibly do is I can describe more levels of gradation in the one resulting pixel information that gets reported because now instead of describing a red, a green, and a blue, uh, taking up the same amount of data space, taking out the same amount of processing power, now I can describe a whole huge range of black and white, which is now going to be, is it quadruple or is it exponential? I don't know. You'd have to do the math. Um, a huge uh, range of, uh, 
of black and white granularity, essentially. So what you end up getting is a lot more depth, uh, color, not color depth, that's what you usually call it, tonal depth, right? So now uh, if you've ever been on YouTube and you see darker videos and um, unfortunately there's like some gradient in the background and you get what's called banding, you know, where like the background has like these weird, like, you know, like bands of like, Oh, this is white. And then this is like a little bit gray and this is a little bit darker. What's happening there is that the YouTube playback and YouTube compression is also garbage, but that's a whole story for another day. The YouTube playback doesn't have enough information to display colors that are in between the bands. It's too fine for it to show basically the, the difference between the one gray and the other gray. So what this allows you to do is get a lot more granular information in there. That's one thing. Last thing technologically that it does is it saves a ton of processing power. So the camera that I'm filming on right now, it's the um, Sony a7 IV. It's a very small body, which makes it extremely impressive because with its very small body and its uh, passive cooling, entirely passive cooling, it has a pretty beefy processor in there that's doing some crazy post work to the image in order to produce natural colors. There's a whole bunch of complexity in there. I'm not going to get into it, but this is the kind of stuff that cinematographers like really get into the weeds over. It's why this 4K camera, uh, which has a similar bit rate to my Blackmagic camera, looks a lot worse than my Blackmagic camera on some sense. Um, not a lot worse. I shouldn't disparage this camera. I love this camera. But, uh, you know, the Black Magic camera has a lot of different stuff going on with physics, but it's also processing as well. And what you're able to do with passive cooling um, on this camera, as well as its form factor. Now, with black and white, you have a lot less complication in the processes that you have to do. It's a lot less complicated to figure out what exact color of green did my little uh, sample from the scene uh, actually be rather than what just these, the resulting intensity that I should uh, record down, compensating for much less variables, much less complexity, much less interpixel complexity, et cetera, et cetera. As a result, I can have a lot more data being sent to my hard drive at a given time, as long as my hard drive can handle it, and a lot more data in terms of gradations of, of black and white being processed at a given time which not only helps with the resolution or the granularity or the tonal depth, it also helps with dynamic range. It also helps me get better uh, lows and highs. So if you ever try to take your phone outside and, uh, you know, film, I don't know, a squirrel or something like that, you know, what one problem you probably ran into is that your phone has terrible dynamic range, uh, which is to say that, if you want to get your squirrel, you know, nice and lit so that you can see the squirrel nicely, you're probably going to get a white sky, even to the point where it, your, your, your uh, phone's dynamic range is so bad that you'll have whited out trees because of the way the sun is hitting the trees. It's just too bright for it to record both simultaneously the dark parts of the scene and the bright parts of the scene because the dy dynamic range is horrible. With black and white, it's a lot more possible to get huge dynamic range. Now, previously, this was film's like thing, right? So film, 
despite the advantage advances in digital uh up until very recently had way more dynamic range than digital so despite all the the advances in digital cameras just fil- simple celluloid film had better dynamic range than digital up until like a year ago practically and it's took taken that long but black and white propels the image well even beyond film in terms of dynamic range so now you could potentially take your black and white camera bring it outside and see both the sky and a shaded subject at the same time which is a creative possibility that was never available to you without altering your scene with either lighting or doing something to your lens um, a whole bunch of other things that you know was done in cinema before but now you can just take the camera straight out and uh, film it just like that. Um, so that's what black and white does. Now, of course, you're taking a huge hit because if you want color information, none of this matters to you, right? Like, you know, this doesn't matter to you at all unless you have the specific niche of making black and white content. But what it does do if you're a director and you're a creator is it gets your mind going because now you have... Uh, <laughs> Time to refinance my home. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> now what you have is, uh, you know, the ability to uh, use this new tool, which I guarantee you, I know how directors think. For You know, this camera comes out despite it being $42,000. You know, this is on the studio's dime. You know, who cares? You can, uh, you can think, maybe I will make a black and white film because I can experiment with these other things. So that's one of the things I think is going on here. Despite some of these films ended up being shot not on these new black and white cameras, like Belfast was shot uh, on a color camera, just was processed into black and white. I still wouldn't be surprised if what prompted the thought was these cameras, you know, becoming more more uh, more prevalent. And one of the interesting things about the the how the aesthetic developed in this new era of black and white, or this sort of, sort of uh, trendiness of black and white is that they're extremely digital meaning they're not even trying to emulate film you know they're not you know a lot of times things are shot in digital for convenience or or for a variety of different reasons there's a million one reasons why you might choose digital over film uh despite pretty much universally everyone agreeing that film is much more gorgeous unless you have a specific look in mind that can only be achieved on digital but the you know but one thing that's done a lot is it's post-processed, digital's post-processed to look like film. Now, I can usually tell the difference, you know, regardless. You know, I would say in eight, time, eight times out of ten, I can probably guess accurately, you know, whether it's digital or film pretty well. Because uh, from my optics background, as someone who studied optics in, uh, in college, the, pro- the big, big problem is that there are just things you cannot emulate because your physical analog processes, you don't actually have the information to know what would have happened. It's, it's gone. Like there's, there's no, uh, there's no information, the information you need to know what happens when the light hits the, the emulsion of the film has more variables than the digital does. And because you did not record those variables with the digital, there's no way for you to emulate them accurately. It's literally just a information, uh, uh, problem. So that's to say that this new aesthetic with black and white, a lot of it has not been around emulating film at all. Now, the example cell I have here, which is uh, um, 
tragedy of Macbeth actually is film. So let's, <laughs> this doesn't help with the example, but Belfast just looked like black and white digital. You know, it just was, it was a digital black and white. It just was going for its own aesthetic, which amazingly hasn't been very well explored. It's something I realized when I sat there, I was like, this looks totally digital. It's not even trying to be film, but this aesthetic I don't think has ever really been explored in depth. And so I could, couldn't, uh, you know, I, I could definitely see filmmakers also saying to themselves, Hmm, no one's really gone for this. Uh, oh no, my camera died. <laughs> That's really awkward. Or disconnected. That's really weird. Yeah. So I was just saying that, you know, the aesthetic hasn't been really explored. So it's been interesting to see, okay, maybe some filmmakers are going to explore this aesthetic. Now I want to talk for a moment about, uh, and I'll, I'll be fast about this. Um, I want to talk for a moment about uh, color in general. So I would say I'm an amateur colorist. So I've done a few, uh, you know, projects where I've colored for productions. You know, I don't consider myself, you know, super masterful at it because it's a science and an art that is extremely complicated. And shout out to you colorists out there. Y'all are amazing. (laughs) But uh, so this is the, uh, the color wheel, right? So we've got all our different colors. This is called an HSL wheel. I won't, I won't bother you with the details, but it contains, you know, uh, in theory, a perfect HSL wheel would, would, uh, would, uh, contain all, uh, colors that you could possibly see. Right. Although it doesn't work out that way, uh, in real life in most circumstances. And so basically what you have when you have complementary colors is that colors that are opposite from each other on the HSL wheel are complementary. So you see at the top of the wheel, you have red and at the bottom you have cyan. So cyan is complementary to red. And uh, you know, you have uh, magenta opposite to green. So magenta is complementary to green. You know, if you've taken a painting class or anything like that, that's rather basic, uh, you know, you could probably go on and on about that. But that's not what I'm interested in talking about here, I just want to lay out, you know, how color typically works and then show you different, uh, different looks real quick. So of course we have black and white, but there's also something called monochrome, right? A monochrome, uh, sort of, uh, color scheme, uh, monochromism, right? Uh, and I'll give you an example of that here. So this is a scene. And if you're watching in post, it's a scene from, uh, if you're listening, sorry, in post, this is a scene from Blade Runner 2049. And the director, Denis Villeneuve, is very, he really loves his monochromism. And from the name and from the image, you could probably guess that monochromism basically just means one color is dominant. So in this frame here, yellow is just, you know, is the only color that's presented only in shades, right? So that's monochromism. Uh, then you have. Uh, Oh, this is another example from the same film. A little bit more complexity in the color because there are a little bit more uh, variations. It's not literally just yellow. Uh, there's some red and some orange here and there. But if you took the HSL, you're literally occupying a very small slice of the HSL wheel to make up your colors. And the interesting thing about monochromism is it's essentially black and white. It is black and white in terms of what kind of information you're getting. The only extra piece of information you're getting is an overall color that's different from no color. It's all just gradations of the same color. It is black and white. So it's just a, just a tinted black and white image, essentially. 
Yeah, exactly. That's not how it's produced, of course, but you know that that's the overall that's the ending effect is essentially black and white. And monochromism is extremely popular. Uh, you know, especially in the more stylized the movie you get, it seems as the more color you you subtract, you know, uh, from from your overall palette. Um, and again, Denis loves to do this. Then we have uh, oh, uh, that's funny. <laughs> Let me fix that real quick. Let's see something like this, which is a uh, this is not quite complimentary, or it's not complimentary at all. It's a two tone look. Um, that's not occupying a complementary space. But what it's doing is it's using two colors. This is from the movie uh, Joker. And it's using two colors. So the vest is orange, and the rest of the color is this teal green, you know, ghastly, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, gross color uh, that's occupying the rest of the space. And if you watch the entire film, it's this, this uh, two-tone look is prevalent throughout. All we've done is we've added another color, and now we have some color information. We've got this incredibly stylized look. And then if you take it to the other end of the spectrum, which is uh, something that, let's say, uh, well, not the extreme other end of the spectrum, but you take it a stylized look and you add even more color, you get something like this, which is from uh, the opening scene in Glorious Bastards, one of the best scenes of all time, and I'll fight you over that. Um, <laughs> this scene right here, uh, there's a lot of color information, right? So there's a lot more. However, it's still constrained, right? So we've got uh, an overall dominance of this teal in the jacket. Um, the just jacket was almost certainly uh, just probably had a hint of teal. Um, I'm sure it was mostly black on set or the way it probably looked. But the, the colorist really brought out the teal, I'm sure, uh, in the jacket. And it's doing a complementary thing with the orange of the skin tones and the earth tones of the table. But there's actually just a lot more color in general here. Like the skin tone colors are just completely different from the, the guy's uh, you know, wardrobe here. And uh, we've got some greenish things happening in the background. It looks more true to life, although while, while meaning, remaining very stylized. And I could bring up an example. Let's say a film like Coda would be the, probably the far end, you know, where it's like, mostly naturally available colors um still you know anything that's colored is going to be stylized as it should be but much more sort of like true to life colors happening you know not as constrained the reason i show those examples is to show the variety of different kinds of ways you can approach color and how they affect the way we look at why black and white is interesting the less color you have in the scene it seems the more stylized of a look you get, well, maybe that's, that's not the right way to put it, the more specific of a look you get, right? Like, it's not, it's not you know, sort of what they had on, on hand. It's a very specific set of colors, and they're really shoving it to the audience. You know, these are the colors, right, that you're going to be looking at. And one of the interesting things, especially when I was thinking about this with uh, monochromism and thinking about that as essentially black and white, is that, in, in the sense of what they achieve, it's basically the same thing. What the things that these things bring out and point to you is to point away from color information and point towards the things that black and white really force you to look at, which is, I think, three things, texture, shape, and composition, right? So texture being like, 
you know, the, the details, right? So if you look at uh, the, the, the image at the bottom there, you know, the texture is, is just very grungy, right? It's very, very classic film, filmic type look. You know, the, the stubble, you know, the beard looks like, you know, it's, it's crunchy. You could reach out and it's almost like, it's almost like the lack of color bring, uh, brings more attention to, to all the little textures that are going on in the image, as well as shape. So you can have very specific shaping of everything happening in a scene. So uh, oftentimes in black and white films, you'll see silhouettes being a dominant, uh, you know, tool being used not just the silhouettes of people, but the silhouettes of objects is more common. So you'll have these buildings at weird angles, um, you know, presenting these interesting shapes. And those interesting shapes, because they're very obvious to you, can communicate something. So take the same building that was making, I don't know, like, a, let's say you have a building that looks sort of like a, a spearhead, let's say, just as a random example. You know, when it's shot at a specific angle, it, it's silhouetted against the sun, it looks like a spearhead. And maybe we're about to see something violent happen, you know, on, on, on screen. Um, and, and this is the preceding image we get, is this very sharp, pointy uh, shape. If you took that same image, that same silhouetted image, and you made it color, the association becomes less strong with something that's more violent, right? There's more distraction in the sense of, you know, there's other components to look at. Oh, it's blue and, 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 and red, and these add a little bit more information that distract from the overall shape. And then there's composition, which is essentially what the overall frame is balanced like where things are positioned in the frame. So normally with, with color, there's color things that happen that change the composition, which is hard to describe without examples, which I didn't pull up. But like color can change the way you look at what's foreground, midground, background. Color can change the way that you perceive something's weight in the frame. So like how much space it seems to take up can be a lot more, let's say, if it's a, if it's a red than if it's an earth tone, right? So there's, there's compositional things that happen with color that you have to account for. With black and white, you're kind of freed a little bit from that, especially because you can adjust those contrasts in post very easily, and you can adjust those contrasts very easily on set. So because you don't have to worry about so much about how colors present as much as just how much luminance do they do they emit, right? What are these reflective surfaces emitting? Uh, what are these matte surfaces? Again, we're talking about textures, right? But then we're also talking about the overall balance of the lighting, which I've always found lighting in black and white films to be just mesmerizing, watching these very stylized, just gorgeous, you know, uh, use of, of haloing and reflections and, and uh, you know, different lens effects happening, um, like ghosting and just, just really taking it to the extreme in terms of basically how light bounces around the scene. Whereas with color, it becomes extremely unruly all of a sudden. Because now, if you're getting ghosting in your lens, it's a color now. Like, it could be like, because of your lens, you know, makeup and whatever, it could be magenta ghosting, but your color palette does not include magenta. So all of a sudden, this tool is gone. You can't even use it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You, you get the point. So that's to say that the recent black and white is interesting, and I think it's a timeless look, and I think 
we can watch amazing films like, uh, you know, well, I was going to say like, like a ton of classics, you know, in black and white and still find it extremely compelling because although we lost some information, we're pointing to new information. And that new information uh, is interesting in a different way. And this is stuff that people like Hitchcock talk about, you know, is what are we exaggerating when we get in black and white versus when we're in color? Personally, I have don't really have any desire to shoot in black and white as is. You know, it's not something that comes to mind with any of the scripts that I have. But this made me think about that, you know, think about that a little bit more in terms of what would you want to do? And in terms of, last thing, in terms of commercial viability, a lot of these films do perfectly fine. A lot of these films don't even present them as gimmicks. That's just how they are. You know, like, Tragedy of Macbeth, it's just in black and white. So you're going to watch it in black and white. And a lot of these films do well anyway. So it, it need not be an obstacle for, for viewers, especially if you don't present it with pretension, which might be an obstacle for some people. And you're like, oh, look at this thing in black and white. Look how great I am, you know, or something like that. Look how trendy and hipster I am. Okay, that's probably going to turn off some people. But if you just made the decision and you're just going to rock with it, which is what's been happening a lot lately, power to you. Um, <laughs> you know, go for it um, and uh, have fun. So that that's basically my uh, my little thing about black and white. I didn't know about the dynamic range thing about black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know any of the science, or but I will say as like as a complete you know ignorant lay person uh, as it comes to all things visual and film, um, but just like you know my experience watching you know, some of these older films like other films, Corn Gold, were kind of like the Seahawker in black and white. Or things like um, you know Tarkovsky and Kurosawa. Right? I think only Kurosawa's very last film is in color, um, even though he's making films in the '90s. I don't know. My impression is that, and it, it probably also has to do with you know the the difference in acting and, and directing. But it feels like there's the emotions are like easier to read without being hammered. You know, they're not like for, thrown in your face. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. I've noticed a lot, especially with film, because skin tones render so beautifully on film. And this, again, is a, a physics thing. It's not something you can just fix with, with, with more software. It doesn't work that way. But, um, you, know, the, you know, the way skin tones render on film, even in black and white, is so gorgeous. And a lot of times what happens, you get these just tight close-ups, especially, you know, in the more like romantic, you know, <laughs> sort of uh, period of filmmaking, you know, you've get these like tight close-ups and you've got these special lenses just for these tight close-ups. And what's happening is all the skin texture on black and white, on black and white film is just so readily apparent. And the way the skin moves and folds and, and creates these little micro expressions and all the, the beautiful human behavior, which is like, almost all of film is just faces, right? Like you can distill down a lot of film to just looking at faces, you know? Um, it, I agree with you entirely that a lot of times, and yeah, there's a difference in acting. It's a little bit rom more romantic. There's a difference in directing and, and cinematography, you know, in that era. But I would say even in something like Belfast, you know, uh, which is doesn't even have the benefit of that beautiful rendering, the skin and the texture, whatever, I saw, I think I, I, I focused a little bit more on the acting, just that little bit more on the acting 
as these movements and and shapes become more part of what you know I'm I'm paying attention to because I don't have color information to distract me, uh, distract me, quote unquote. It's just a trade off, right? You know, between one decision and another. And one that I think is interesting with monochromism. So if you want color, you know, and you, you want to even change the color from scene to scene, but you also want to preserve shape, think about doing it with monochromism, right? And just saying this scene is yellow, you know, or this narrow range of yellows, right? Or something like that. And then you can preserve this shape thing, but also provide a mood with the color itself. And so you can sort of have this interesting both things happening. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. I think that was a fun little thing. <laughs> it is now uh, 12.15 a.m. Is that a new record? I don't know. I don't know. But if there's anyone still out there, thank you for watching. I think Dino Nine Crime was still around. Um, savage. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for watching. Unfortunately, I'm really behind in editing, and I'm really trying to fix that. Although I feel like I'm fighting a, like an uphill battle here because um, I'm a little a little behind. So forgive me if some of these things come out later and a little bit uh, out of order as well. You know, um, as certain things take precedent over others. But the best thing that you could do, more than you know, I don't need money or anything like that. What I would love for you to do is smash the like button. And share anything that you found interesting in the podcast, whether it's this episode, our music episodes, our gaming episodes, whatever you find interesting, share it with a friend that might enjoy it. And also leave a comment with anything that you'd like us to do differently or like us to do more, whatever it may be, just uh, let us know. So uh, with that, I guess I'll see you next week. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching and listening. Look. Tell a man no trouble, I don't want beef, man, I just want vibes. Big man like me, no need for the telephone hype. I got too much getting online, one rule, then dead I'm on sight. Wrong move, I bet they gon' ride. No need for the telephone hype, nah, no need for the snoozing. Big whip outside, I'm cruising. Big stick inside, no losing. Better watch out for the snake and Judas's. Don't ask them who this is, I bet they know what I'm moving in. I bet I show it into a damn. How you hate and then lose again? How you hating my vibes? Why you wasting my time? Getting hype on my line. Tell a man I don't want feedback. I just want relax. Brand new whip, two-tone. I need that brand new hit. You know, like lean back, brand new bits. I live in we back, man. You never gonna like us. Get them on sight now. Let them all light that way. They know I'm all righteous. Look at my life. I'm living all right. I'm nice. You know I'm all right. Looking like Christ. No need for the hype or fight. All telephone vipers. No need for the telephone vipers.